Thoth's Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Hello, friends and listeners. Welcome to episode two of the Thoth Hermes podcast season eight. My name is Rudolf. I am the creator of the podcast and your host. And I'm speaking to you from the outskirts of Vienna, Austria's lovely capital. Today is Sunday, March the 6th, 2022. And it's a pleasure for me to welcome those of you back who are regulars of the show or have been here just a couple of times. All of you are welcome back. And of course, I welcome those who are here for the first time uh, on this show. Great to have you with us. Thanks for your fidelity, everyone. And if you wish to go to the website and check out all the other 120-ish episodes that we have done so far, you can do so on thoughtshermes.com, that is T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. And yeah, well, you'll not find, only find the episodes themselves there. Those you can also find on all major podcast outlets and on YouTube, etc. But you'll find all the show notes. And that's quite important, I believe, um, if you want to go in-depth a little bit in the subjects that we are dealing with here. We're dealing, of course, with Western esoteric tradition. Today, my guest will be William Mann, who is a specialist on a, well, I, to be honest, a very weird story for us Europeans and also for us European Freemasons, as I am one. Um, this is not a purely Masonic story. It is an episode. Um, well, I'll tell you more, you know, I'll tell you more in the intro to the interview. And those of you who usually skip the intro maybe today you'll stay with me and listen after the first piece of music listen to me introducing this show because as i say it's uh, a subject that is a bit particular and i would like to say a few words about it well now you know what's coming of course um we we should um uh, we we should talk about patreon yes we need to um, well, thank you to those of you who have joined last week. There were again a couple of people who have joined here as a patron. Thank you to all of you who have been patrons for quite some time and who are supporting the show. And thanks to all of those in advance who will go in the next few days and click on that Patreon page. Look for the Thoughts Hermes podcast and become donors and supporters of this show. Possibilities start with $1 per show. It really would be nice. It's not for buying me coffee. It's really for producing the show, for paying the material and the software hire and everything that we need. And as I said, for our fifth anniversary, we will have to do some special effort. I will come back to you in, in two weeks, I guess, with that. And we'll speak about that then. So um, what else did I want to say? Yes, feedback, feedback. If you want to give us feedback, that's always very important. 
um, especially if there are topics where you want to give your comments and say what you think about it. Uh, I could have more of that as well, of your back feedback. On YouTube, you're quite good in giving me some feedback, but on other other topics or here on other um, possibilities of feedback, you are scarce. Um, voicemails possibility from the website directly, uh, free of charge, of course. And then we have the possibility of sending me an email, info at thoughthermes.com. We have the possibility to also go on the website on that special message screen and sending me a message from there. And, uh, well, of course, there's always Facebook and Twitter, which will allow us to communicate, right? So use the possibility. Um, yeah, well, um, let's start, as we always do, with uh, some music. And um, the music that I'm going to play for you here today, the first piece at least, um, well, we are talking, going to talk to you uh, about the Templars in North America. That's one of the main topics of this interview. And, um, well, the music I'm going to play now at the first instance is not a Templar music as such, but... It's a piece that I just came upon, I, to be honest. And when I first listened into it, when I was looking for music for this show, um, I thought this was some weird version of Carmina Burana uh, by Karl Orff. I am sure many of you know that piece, you know, the O Fortuna bit. And it also starts with almost the same text, Fortuna. And it sounds very similar, but it's different. It's called Preliator. It's from a concert at the Wembley Stadium in 2010, I believe, by a uh, production called Globus. And we have Lisbeth Scott as a singer. And, um, well, it kind of fits in, in the whole story here today. It sounds a bit like medieval music, of course, if we talk about Templars. Medieval uh, spirit is all there. It is contemporary. Um, it is like Carmina Burana, but is not. It's a completely free new composition. So, well, you'll guess why I chose that music later on. So let's just dive into that music and listen to Preliator by Globus, sung by Lisbeth Scott, uh, a live recording. That's why you will hear some applause and so. And um, fascinating piece, I think. Enjoy.
I hope I didn't promise too much. I think it's an extraordinary strong piece that you just heard. Preliator by Globus and sung by Lisbeth Scott, live recording from the Wembley Stadium. Great Britain, I didn't know the piece at all, and it sounds so much like the Carmina Burana. It's fascinating. Well, um, good introduction to our subject here today. Today, my guest on this show is William Mann. William um, who is a specialist on a subject that I must say is a subject that we do not know at all here in Europe, even if we are Freemasons and Scottish Rite Freemasons. And it's that subject on the Templars uh, movement across North America. Actually, and that's why I said I wanted to introduce that episode a little bit, because um, I think it's important to, to those of you who, like me, didn't know much about the, the subject. I have heard a lot about the subject over the last couple of years, but um, I wasn't aware it to be such a, uh, a clear story in many circles in North America. And um, I'm still not sure, um, personally, personally, I'm still not sure how that story will come out, but... Um, uh, it's it's an it is a fascinating story. Actually, what happened is that two years ago, Inner Traditions published a novel, a novel on Albert Pike, uh, and that was that novel was called "The Last Refuge of the Knights Templar," and um, it's on the life of Albert Pike, a figure we all know and we all have our thoughts about. And as a Scottish Rite Mason that I am, of course, I'm aware of him. And I said, hmm, what has he to do with the Knights Templar? And this was a novel by William Mann. Uh, a very nice read that you do, that I can only suggest you to read if you're interested in the topic, and um, which brings you deep into that topic. And then I followed up and saw that um, William had written actually three books about, um, uh, which are non-fictional books on Templar sanctuaries in North America. Is one of the three books, the Templar Meridians, which is also part of the of the story in the fictional book, um, uh, and. Yeah, it's it's a subject that um, caught me, and I thought we should talk about it. Now, I'm aware that many of you will think, "Hmm, what is that about?" And uh, um, well, just listen, just go in there and listen, and make your own thoughts about it. And I would be happy to hear also back from you what you think about it. It's it's um, William Mann is certainly a very knowledgeable man, and he is also very. Uh, honorable man in in the field of Masonic uh, um, and occult societies. His late great-uncle was the Supreme Grandmaster of the Knights Templar of Canada and also he he's Canadian himself and he he also he himself has um, has been in that same in that same function as the sovereign great uh, so Supreme Grandmaster it's called of the Sovereign Great Priory of the Knights Templar of Canada. He was also the Grand Archivist of this order, and uh, that's where he discovered those pike letters that then were the base of that book, uh, The Last Refuge of the Knights Templar, which has become that novel that I was writing to you about. Actually, I said two years ago that book appeared. Yes, it did. And what happened? That was... Exactly two years ago, I remember very well because it's by the day today when we release our show here today, 
that um, in Austria we had the first lockdown starting with COVID. So I guess it was more or less around the same date all over the place in the world where you are. And um, uh, the book appeared just a couple of weeks later. And through that problem, well, the warehouses of the of of the publishers closed down, etc., etc. Somehow, the book never made it to me, even though it should have. And um, and suddenly, I thought a few months ago, well, I should maybe catch up on that, and I did. And here today, you hear the result of that catching up. So, um, yeah, a different intro. I'm not going to read you from the book here today. I wanted to tell you a bit more about the background. So once again, it's a story that was in me. The interview was initiated through a novel, a fictional novel. Um, but uh, I then found out that behind that, the story of the Templars in North America, and that's not only William Mann's story, there is a, a real a lot of people who are looking into that story and have evidence on that, and William is one of the specialists on that topic. So we will have a discussion not only on his novel, but on the topic itself, and also what the Knights Templar um, mean today for uh, for history and for certain um, esoteric and Masonic movements in North America. Right? So... Once again, it's not a Masonic episode. I never drew purely Masonic episodes, even if topics are close to Masonry. And this is certainly not a topic that is close to normal, so to speak. Sorry to use that word, what is normal in the world, but it's not something that is usually talked about in um, Masonry, especially not in Europe. It's a very North American episode, but very interesting for us Europeans and for everyone all over the world, I guess. So we will we will discuss the Templars in North America and go now straight away to Oakville, Canada and speak to William Mann. You know that in about 30-ish minutes I will come back to you with some more music. And um, until then, I tell you, enjoy the interview and let's meet William Mann. Here comes the interview. It is my great pleasure here tonight on the Thoughts Hermes podcast to go to Canada with our guests here tonight to Toronto, Ontario, and we meet William F. Mann. Brother William, good evening, Brother Bill. Hello. How are you today? Very, very nice. Thank you very much, Rudolph. Obviously, uh, like everybody else around the world, trying to deal with the two-year pandemic, but hopefully we're coming out of it. And uh, I'm looking forward to doing some of the things that we have haven't been able to do for the last two years. Absolutely, especially those people of us who work in whatever order it is, be it magical orders, be it Masonic orders, etc. I think we have a longing to meet again in person and, and do the work that we're used to in the, in the usual way, right? No, absolutely. And it's unfortunate uh, in my dealings uh, through Zoom over the last two years, it's become quite apparent that uh, uh, Freemasons around the world are really missing something in terms of having in-person meetings. 
Absolutely. Maybe that's just very briefly, Bill, if you agree, we could, we could uh, briefly talk about because, as I said, it is true and we both have the experience with Masonic orders on that, but I believe it's true for any also magical order, esoteric order who regularly meets and has a kind of egregore that they want to maintain um, that this situation over the last two years. I always say we need those meetings to put our individualities back on track somehow in the ritual. Um, but uh, I don't know what's your take on it. Why? Why is it so necessary, those meetings? And what does it change when we don't have it? I, I, I would agree totally. Um, there's something about fraternal meetings that, that when members get together in the various orders and, and conduct various rituals, there, there's a, a sense of purpose, uh, a real sense of purpose and a real sense of fraternity that you don't gain through, uh, online meetings and, uh, uh, chats, um, it's unfortunate uh, anybody who is not a Mason really wouldn't be able to experience or to express the fraternal uh, greetings and uh, atmosphere that's developed uh, surrounding the various rituals. Absolutely. And those rituals are, of course, there for that. Absolutely. The immediate uh, reason or triggered why we are meeting here today, Bill, you know, it is your latest book. Well, it's already almost two years, I must say that it has been released. And a little bit, um, even that delay was due to in initially due to COVID because when that book I'm talking about the last refuge of the Knights Templar, um, which was released by Inner Traditions in early 2020, uh, but it was just released, I believe it was May 2020 or so. And usually I get those books from uh, Inner Traditions right away when they appear. And then the warehouse was closed due to COVID. Everything got messed up. And somehow, um, well, when it was over, it had gone astray. And then finally, a few months ago, I said, Hey, what about that book? I want to speak to Bill about it. And finally, we're here together. So, but it's still your latest book, uh, I believe. So we are still a bit in the actuality. It is. It is. It's unfortunate. Uh, April, May uh, 2020 was when the uh, the COVID really struck. And uh, we had planned a big uh, book release at the Scottish Rite Building that I attend, a beautiful building uh, in Hamilton, Ontario. And uh, uh, actually, it's, it's done very well. Um, I think uh, in part because of uh, COVID, a lot of people yeah. have spent the last two years uh, searching for books of this nature. Uh, it's interesting. I wrote the book. Um, it's based on a, a series of letters uh, when I that I discovered or rediscovered when I was the uh, the grand historian archivist for the Sovereign Great Prior of Canada uh, between Albert Pike, the Sovereign Grand Commander uh, in the late uh, 1800s from the United States, very infamous, a Confederate general. Uh, the only one to be pardoned after the assassination of, uh, of Lincoln and his counterpart in Canada, Colonel William J. Burry McLeod Moore, um, the first Supreme Grand Master of, of Canada for the Sovereign Great Priory Knights Templar of Canada. 
Indeed, and I mean, just to be clear to those who have not yet had the books in hand, um, this is a fictional book, but it is a fictional book that is based on those letters that you just mentioned, which are historical. And of course, those two persons who wrote them, as you just mentioned, uh, are historical figures. So this is really based on a, a very real background, right? Very, very much so. But I, I, it's funny, you have to tread lightly out there in the, in the public realm. And I felt it was more appropriate to, to develop a fictional story around those letters and rather dive right into those letters. Because as we know, there are things happening in the United States and, and virtually around the world that, uh, uh, Albert Pike is still seen as the, uh, omnipresent, uh, champion of the, uh, United States South. And as we know, there's a lot of, uh, political issues going on down in the United States. So I felt it more appropriate that I include them within a fictional story. Yes, no, I, I see what you mean. And uh, um, especially at the time of shortly before the time that you released the book, that was even more in the in the in view. Uh, those stories were very much uh, actual at the time and has gone a little bit down at the moment. At least that's what I see from here over here in the Europe. Well, we're very closely, uh, and I'm very closely tied to the uh, Knights Templar of the United States, the Grand Encampment of the USA. And um, uh, in consideration of the sensitivities, the political sensitivities that uh, they're experiencing right now, uh, I included it within a fictional book. And it's uh, like Arthur Conan Doyle, another uh, Freemason, incorporated a number of actual actualities, uh, Masonic actualities and symbolism within the uh, fictional stories of Sherlock Holmes. And it's worked out really quite well. Absolutely. So maybe why don't you introduce that book a little bit to those who don't know about it yet, just a little bit so that they, as a teaser, so to speak, that, that they know a bit about it and what you wanted to express with it and what, what it is all about. And maybe later on, then we can go to this previous books where same stories, but in a different way are brought to you. Thank you. Uh, well, interesting enough, um, my previous books, uh, non-fictional, three of them uh, brought together what I call a Templar trilogy. And there's this whole notion, uh, and I wasn't the first to develop it. Uh, I picked up on it about 30 years ago when I decided to become a Freemason. Uh, there's this notion that the Knights Templar, the medieval Knights Templar, after being suppressed in 1314 by the uh, King of France and the uh, Catholic Pope, uh, made their way secretly and they knew of the New World, made their way to the New World and strategically intermarried with the uh, Native North Americans. And in, in that, they brought with them what's the so-called uh, Templar treasure. And I'm sure that a number of listeners are familiar with the, uh, the Curse of Oak Island, which is broadcast on History Channel. But uh, the notion that the Templar treasure buried somewhere in North America. Through, uh, through a lot of research and through a lot of knowledge that I've gained through the various orders, I've been able to pinpoint a site actually in, uh, in the state of Montana in the United States where I believe that the sacred vault lies and that the uh, Templar treasure still remains to this day and is being guarded by the guardians um, or the descendants of those Knights Templar and uh, Native North Americans. Right. So 
what would you prefer? Would you prefer we talk about those non-fictional books first and then quote your latest one? Or is it better the other way around? How do you feel about that? I think well, why don't we talk about the first three non-fictional books? Um, yeah. they, they really provide the context to what we're going to talk about in terms of the Knights Templar. Uh, I, I believe it's better. You're right. Right. So you just lay out uh, the story. Now, of course, this podcast is listened to by a grand majority of North American listeners, but we are based in Europe. And um, even though I am very deep into Masonic history over here, um, I must say that that part of the Templar story is something that is not very well known over here in Europe. So, um, and maybe even to the audience here, as we are not purely Masonic audience, all the contrary, maybe it's good if you, if you could develop that a little bit about um, why it happened and what do you believe that that treasure could be or should be? Is it really gold and silver or is it something else? So maybe you can expand a little bit on that. Well, based on a historical fact, about a thousand years ago, the Knights Templar, the Knights of the uh, Temple, the poor soldiers of Christ, uh, were formed as an order, um, and they were really the shock troops of the uh, of the Pope, the Vatican itself, uh, and they were really the catalyst behind one of the catalysts behind the first Crusades and continued throughout the Crusades. Uh, starting in 1098, uh, a group of nine knights uh, purportedly discovered under the ruins of the Temple of Solomon a great treasure. Now, it's interesting that you pinpoint right away, uh, what do I believe the treasure to be? I, I think the treasure is a number of things. Yes, there's, there's physical, uh, treasure, metals and, uh, sacred objects and, um, uh, relics. But more importantly, I believe there's that there's knowledge, uh, knowledge associated with the, uh, library, first library in Alexandria, uh, ancient knowledge, uh, esoteric wisdom, all of those things, uh, combined. So when we talk about the Temple of Treasure that was spirited out of, uh, the Holy Land, uh, in, uh, roughly 1116, we're talking about a variety of things, but to me, the treasure is really about knowledge, the sacred knowledge that you find within the various orders, the higher orders of uh, Freemasonry. So the um, uh, purpose of the Knights Templar was a spirit that treasure uh, out of the Holy Land, uh, take it back to France, and then from France, it uh, left La Rochelle, the, the Templar port of La Rochelle, on the evening of Friday the 13th, 1307. And that's uh, an infamous date. Um, uh, the king of France, Philippe Le Bel, in the cahoots with the, uh, the Pope, Clement V, at the time, uh, they, uh, they, I guess you could say they developed a whole series of accusations against the Knights Templar by which they were able to suppress the order. And they, they were, they, it was like a kamikaze move on Friday the 13th, whereby they, uh, they broke into all the French preceptories and killed a number of French Templars. But uh, and they seized the Grand Master Jacques de Molay, and then after seven years of torture, burnt him at the stake in uh, Paris, France. 
But uh, during that time, the Templar treasure was spirited away. I believe it was disseminated. Uh, the old uh, analogy of you don't want to have all your eggs in one basket, disseminated places like Denmark, um, Portugal, uh, Spain, England, Scotland, all areas where Freemasonry is very prominent nowadays. And in fact, that it, it the Templar was then congregated in North America and uh, established as the basis for what the Templars would refer to as the New Jerusalem. Well, what of course we have to underline here is that when you talk about North America and the Templars recongregating there, that was at a time where officially, in what we have as official history today, uh, America had not been discovered, right? Um, so this would have been or was at the time when um, the official the official geography didn't know that land. So how did, in your view, the Templars um, discover that part of the world? How did they make it over there and what did they find there? Well, that was well, that was part of the knowledge that they gained from the uh, from discovering the treasure under the uh, Temple Solomon ruins. Um, it's based on ancient knowledge from the Phoenicians, Carthaginians, Romans. Uh, I believe that uh, for centuries uh, there were various secret societies, even pre-Christian secret societies, Pythagorean. And, uh, and a number of Greek societies that were making secretive uh, transatlantic voyages to North America. Con consider it this way, if there was that, uh, that secret knowledge, obviously it would be considered free trade amongst the native North Americans and the secret societies. It would be considered one of the largest or greatest treasures in the world at the time. So, but it's interesting, uh, if you anticipate that the Templars did come to North America in the 12th, 13th, 14th centuries, I've uh, recently discovered because of my involvement with the indigenous people in North America, uh, certain clues, certain indications that yes, there were strategic in intermarriages formed between the Knights Templar and the uh, native North Americans. When you say strategic intermarriages, uh, do we have to imagine that in a way like European um, kings uh, intermarried their, their sons and daughters in order to recreate new power structures? Or how would you define that, that policy? No, absolutely. Uh, actually, that's a very good description. I think they uh, continued that practice. While there were strategic intermarriages happening between the various indigenous nations in North America at the time, but uh, what better way to form uh, partnerships, uh, secret partnerships, because the Knights Templars shared the uh, um, the, the sacred uh, beliefs of the uh, North Native North Americans. What better way to form those partnerships than through uh, established bloodlines uh, and intermarriages and uh, keeping it all in the family, if you say. I, I see what you mean. So uh, this was, I was going to ask you, what was the strategy behind it? But is it as 
to have keepers of those secrets and to have people who know the area to find the place to hide the, uh, to hide that treasure or what what was the strategy behind it actually well the strategy was a lot of people um based upon official european history believe that the uh, native north americans uh were subservient to to any europeans that were exploring uh native north america it could be farther from the truth the native north americans repelled uh, a number of groups including the vikings um, and uh, dissuaded everybody from seeking further refuge but there was there was this established belief uh, a common belief between and i found this because i've attended both sides of the rituals knights templar rituals and native north american or medewin traditional medewin uh, ceremonies and i found them actually to be mirror images of each other so there was that common bond in belief in a in a higher uh, secret knowledge and understanding which led to ultimately uh, a wisdom which would be conveyed uh, through the treasure that the templars uh, brought with them well to me personally but i i could well imagine that this is the case for many of our listeners here and um, that part when you and that's also in your latest book it comes uh, very clearly uh, when you compare um Templar rituals to uh, indigenous rituals in north america that you that you see certain maybe not overlaps, but similarities, let's put it that way. And um, could you, for people who have n neither knowledge of Masonic nor uh, native um, rituals, could you maybe expand a little bit on that to, to, to show what you mean by that, wh where those similarities lie and what makes them apparent? Well, within Masonic uh, rituals, uh, it's really there's two basic rituals or two basic principles to the rituals. One is sacred geometry and the other is moral allegory. So you have a balance of science versus the spiritual. Again, in uh, native North American ritual, you have the balance between science, which a lot of people may be surprised at, and the spiritual, uh, including things like uh, astronomy, numerology, uh, androgyny, uh, etymology, a play on words. All of those things are common elements, colors, numbers, uh, distances. Uh, all of those things are common elements between uh, the various rituals. Within Freemasonry, as, as you know, Rudolph, uh, uh, a majority of the ritual is based on the allegory of the reconstructing of the temple. Yeah. And uh, in that is applied uh, certain uh, principles in terms of numerology and uh, everything from uh, building blocks to constructing walls, really building a new foundation. Uh, and that's the allegorical sense of the ritual. Uh, in uh, Native North American uh, secret ritual, there's exactly the same. Essentially, uh, there's uh, a rebirth of the the young warrior and uh into a greater man whereas we see in freemasonry there's always a rebirth ceremony uh there is life after death um and that spiritual aspect so they shared very common elements and they recognized that now the the probably the biggest element which allowed the knights templar 
to essentially develop these intermarriages with the Native North Americans was their respect and their um, uh, their acceptance of Native North Americans and vice versa, the acceptance by the Native North Americans of the Tempers because of what they demonstrated. They came in peace. Now, from the from the Western and even European point of view, as the Templars came out of Europe, um, that um, ideology of being open to the stranger and open to uh, foreign people was, of course, part of, of a very particular view of the Templars and later on in Masonic circles. Um, and I believe it must be the same in indigenous peoples in North America. Well, so when they discovered each other, so to speak. Um, in your point of view, or maybe you've even got proof for that, um, did they find similar rituals with the other, or did they teach each other rituals so that they became similar in the end? I think the, I think they be, they discovered a common origin or basis to the rituals, and as you indicated, then they what they would have done is they would have shared their knowledge and wisdom, and that sharing of knowledge and wisdom had to be open and honest and truthful. And uh, it's uh, I know there's a moral to the story here in terms of the Knights Templar and Freemasonry, but uh, in essence, those are the lessons, allegorical lessons that are still taught to us today through our ritual, which uh, in many cases have been Christianized uh, a great deal, but you can see that there is a common element to the basic, basic rituals. Uh, um, I hate using the word pagan. It's, uh, it's non-Christian, but there is a spiritual belief that there is a, a creator, that there's Mother Earth, all of these elements which are uh, greater forces within the world. And if you practice certain ritual, if you practice uh, certain basic um, elements within your uh, lifestyle, that you're able to achieve that higher level, very much like uh, many religions around the world. Um, that's something I think that should be underlined in this very clear that that creator or what, the, what the, we Masons call the grand architect of the world. Um, of course, it's that creator figure and the spiritual force, but it has been overlaid in many parts uh, by the Christian God, which it I don't think it should be. Uh, it's some, in something else. And um, maybe maybe that's also something that French or German language masonry is a bit further off from than than the Anglo-Saxon masonry, right? Uh, very much so. I've been introduced to uh, uh, French uh, Templar ritual and Rosicrucian ritual, and I find that uh, uh, very indicative of the seeking of that higher higher being, that higher force. Something that's available, something uh, if we practice certain ritual, if we practice certain elements within our entire life that we're able to achieve. You always hear uh, people talk about achieving that higher level during times of crises, during times of war. Um, but uh, there is within peace times uh, there's an opportunity to achieve that higher level. And uh, even if you just receive a glimpse of that higher level, I would suggest that it's worth it. 
Of course, there's a saying that it's easier to shed light when there's times of darkness. <laughs> but <laughs> no, absolutely. One point of view. <laughs> yes. No, no, I think that's true. I think that's true. I think so too. I think and uh, what I find very interesting is, especially during COVID, I've talked to a number of people individually, and it seems that the ones that are at peace, um, uh, whether it be Masonic ritual, whether it be another religion, so the ones that, that are peace and that have an understanding, a higher or different understanding of the world are the ones that can cope within this pandemic to a greater degree than the ones who are not. Mm -hmm. Yes, and if I may say something personally, the, uh, I'm I'm working very much in the, in a hermetic way, also within masonry. That's uh, even even in regular masonry where I belong to, but there is a large part of that in it, and I'm very strongly adhering to that. And um, the fact that I stayed home so much more time than I would during normal times made me also got sent get centered much more easily and be more with me in the hermetic way and being being more in a in a state in the state of awareness that might be a bit easier to achieve than during those busy times when you run from one function to the other no absolutely and uh, um i'm an artist also and what i found is uh following my retirement after 40 years in the planning and development world very hectic world um even uh, even creating something in front of you using color and dimension uh adds to that spiritual element and provides you with a certain calmness and i'm sure a lot of your listeners who are artists or or authors or uh, are involved in other activities such as meditation and yoga uh, can achieve the exactly the same thing. But uh, within Freemasonry, I believe that this is why there's the need to be to be attending uh, personal meetings, uh, uh, in-person meetings. There's there's a certain there's a certain quality to conduct the conducting of meetings to uh, memorization and to performance. Uh, it really takes you out of your element. And I'm sure that you have felt like I have felt that when you are in lodge or in preceptory or in uh, uh, Scottish Rite Temple, uh, there's a certain time space sequence that, that is removed from your hectic life. Definitely, absolutely, absolutely. So if we go back to your very first book of the trilogy, I think it's the first book, the Templar Meridians, I think is the first of the trilogy, right? No, the Knights Templar in the world is the first. The, That's the, the first. The Templar okay. Meridians is... I, I, I wanted to refer to the Meridians because I believe it's in that book that you also explain how the Templars knew about, uh, about North America and how they also made their way there. Could you maybe just give our listeners a little hint about that? Well, what, what's really interesting about that is that I've discovered that there's a series of uh, longitudinal lines, uh, a pattern, uh, eight degree pattern around the world that fall on a number of old Templar sites um, outside of the Greenwich Mean Time and uh, uh, say the old uh, Golden Mile uh, through Paris or Golden Meridian through Paris that uh, that the Templars had their own knowledge of establishing uh, a system of longitudinal latitudinal meridians around the world. And I think that 
came out of knowledge that they rediscovered under the temple ruins and they applied that and therefore they were uh, at the time uh, during the 1100s and 1200s they had this, the greatest maritime fleet in the world and they were virtually circumnavigating the world at a time when the Vatican believed that if you went past the pillars of Hercules that you would fall off the end of the earth because it was flat so this is very interesting uh, um, the Templars themselves were very spiritual but also they were men of science men of application and uh, I believe and I demonstrate within the Templar Meridians that they had this secret system of mapping a, a, a virtue around the world. Right. And I think that that's really a really fascinating part of your trilogy for me, because uh, um, do you think that it is often said that the contact that the Templars had in the Holy Land with, the, uh, with a certain part of the Islamic world there, with wisdom and science of the Islamic world, um, influenced them in this knowledge. Is that your theory as well, or do you see it differently where they got this knowledge from? No, I would support that 100%. It's obvious that the Templars realized that... Uh, especially in, the, in their battles with the Saracens and the Moors, uh, that they, they couldn't beat them. So the old analogy, uh, join them instead of beating them. And uh, from that, they've gained, uh, obviously through a gain, a policy of exchange of wisdom, uh, they gained uh, a variety of wisdoms. Uh, from the uh, Islamic uh, world and from the Christian world and from the uh, the non-Christian, the indigenous world. So I think that they uh, were open to receiving all knowledge, be it spiritual, be it science, uh, be it hidden, hidden knowledge, uh, being uh, anything uh, relating to numerology, to sacred geometry, to the basic sciences. I, I'm sure you're aware of uh, James Wasserman's book, Templar Heresy, um, which is also a fictional book, but also where he tries in a fictional way to lay out certain theories about the, the knowledge of the Templars. Is this something that you would be close very, with? very, very close to very close yeah. to. I, yeah. I think I think anybody in the know, any historian will readily admit now that the Templars, uh, uh, they had obviously certain sects inner inner circles that were more interested in the developing relationships, long term relationships and uh, uh, developing knowledge and through knowledge, there's power. Uh, there was a lot of inner machinations going on while the uh, the wars and the battles were happening outside the walls. Okay, and now it's time to play some music again. And as I already said with the first piece of music, the choice of music, and you will see that in the next two very, very clearly, um, I chose music which I believe just by inspiration goes very well with our subject here today, which is a subject that is um, an ancient subject, which is located in initially in the in Europe and in the Middle East, and uh, then was somehow transported to North America, but in a way that is not entirely clear. It's not a historic fact, but it's assumptions. And so the music I chose here today is 
related to that. The first piece was medieval seen through the eyes of the 21st century. Now, the next piece you're going to hear is Lebanese of origin, but very contemporary, very modern, but it's based um, on ancient traditional music somehow. And uh, it is called Echoes of the Temple. So isn't that the perfect the perfect uh, title for here today? And the third piece is Native American music, but also seen through our eyes and ears here today. So nothing is really quite original, but it's all transported into our contemporary world, right? I hope. I made that clear what I mean with that. So the next piece that we're going to hear, musical piece, is by Genvan Nenon. She is Lebanese, as I said, and she is using um, ancient Lebanese instruments, also used in a modern, very contemporary way, electronic way. And that recording was made at the temple in Baalbek, a um, temple called Nihabeka. It's a Roman temple, actually, but of course... It's very deep in that country where the original Templars were acting in the 11th century. And it was recorded in 2021, that piece um, called Echoes of the Temple. And it was composed and arranged by Gen Van Eman, Michael Fadel and Fadi Abi Hashem. And I hope you're going to enjoy that. And after that piece, we're going to back, go back to William Mann and listen to the second part of that fascinating and interesting interview with him. And at the end of the show, we, well, at the end of the interview, sorry, we will have the third piece of music, the third piece of music, which, as I said, is of Native American background. It's a circle dance, a circle dance that um, I think um, is quite common, but it's also here in a, a contemporary music. And now I really do hope I do pronounce that correctly. Li Olai Aleluya. A native song, a circle dance, Li Olai Ale Loya. That will be after the interview. So now let's go listen to Genva Nemon live at the Baalbek Temple, um, recorded in 2021 with that piece, Echoes of the Temple. And then we go back to William Mann. And after the talk with William Mann, it will be the native song in a modern version, Li Olai Ale Loya. Enjoy.
let's before we go back and deeper into the trilogy and especially in your latest book um let's talk about uh, the person william f man himself right um maybe before we go to the to the mason and the templar uh, bill man um You mentioned you were an artist. You mentioned you were also in, in another profane um, um, profession. But what brought you to the spiritual world? What was your background there? How did you, how were you brought into contact in the first place with that world of spirituality, the esoteric Western mind, etc.? Well, what's interesting there is uh, uh, now that I'm, I'm 67 years old now, and uh, uh, I realize that you readily realize that now, but uh, I didn't realize that even from the youngest age that uh, there obviously was something identified within me that uh, uh, my grandfather died before I was uh, uh, born and his two brothers, my two great uncles, uh, really took over, um, uh, my education. And, uh, they realized from the earliest age that, uh, I demonstrated certain, certain aptitude for puzzles and clues. If you ever, uh, remember the scene in the Da Vinci code, um, the, the fellow who's known as the teacher was asking, uh, the young female, uh, Parisian, uh, uh, police lady, the crypto, crypto analyst, um, Sophie, do you, do you solve puzzles very easily? Do you, uh, lie down with riddles like lovers? And, and it's interesting, very much the same right from the various earlier age. And I didn't realize it, that my one great uncle, while well, both of my great uncles were involved in masonry to a great deal, but my great uncle was in fact, Supreme Grand Master in Knights Templar Canada in the fifties. And I didn't know that. And I didn't realize, uh, Uh, until I became a Mason myself that my, my father and his brothers and my uh, four great uncles and the Mann family has a real history in Freemasonry, uh, as from as far back as I, I can delineate. But there's also the other aspect, uh, uh, my mother I didn't discover was, uh, herself indigenous, uh, Algonquin and, um, Uh, I didn't really discover that until I wrote one of my first books and I was approached by a very well-known elder on Vancouver Island here in Canada asking me if I was native myself. So he's introduced me to Medeoan, traditional Medeoan ceremony over the last 30 years and it was a combination of that. But from a spiritual aspect, uh, I would say the, the biggest thing that really affected me was my mother dying of cancer, breast cancer in 1994. And through that, obviously, uh, when you experience a very close death like that, you, you go through, I went through a year of reflection. And out of that came uh, uh, my first book because I've obviously had a number of things running through my head. And the easiest way I found to sort of disseminate them was to get them out of my head and to write them down. And my first book evolved from that. And uh, I've written five books since. Um, so, um, and now that I've been introduced to, 
uh, secret ritual on both sides of the uh, both sides of the continent. Um, it's really interesting uh, the spiritual aspects that I've started to develop, and uh, I won't, I can't go into it in detail. But some of the things sure. that some of the things that you can experience out of body experiences that are just in some ways mind boggling, but in other ways I readily I learned now to readily accept them, and through that uh, I have certain uh, insinuations or um, uh, dreams and spiritual callings that uh, readily come to be uh, from now on. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um, could, could you tell us a bit uh, about your path because it's related also to our subject here uh, within the Order of the Templars? Maybe explain our audience who might know a little bit about masonry, about uh, also the higher degrees in masonry, but the Templar as an order, especially in North America, is a little less known, right? Um, and it would be nice if you could give us A, the relation to masonry, B, where it goes as far as you can tell, of course. Well, interesting enough, as you know, Rudolph, there's really two arms to masonry, and it was developed within the 1700s. There's Scottish Rite Masonry, which that is uh, either the origin or follows uh, French Blue Lodge Masonry. Um, and there was obvious an interaction of the French and Scots during the 1600s and 1700s. Uh, and there's York Wright Masonry, which was developed in the 1700s by the English, probably in response to Scottish Wright Masonry. York Wright Masonry and uh, Scottish Wright Masonry share the same three basic degrees, uh, Blue Lodge Masonry um, and uh, the creation of a master mason out of that. From that, uh, many masons choose uh, to go one route or the other, Scottish Rite or York Rite. But uh, here in North America, uh, many of my friends, actually, we go both lines. But uh, as you follow through Scottish Rite and York Rite Masonry, York Rite Masonry, and you go up through higher levels known as Royal Arch Masonry, uh, uh, Cryptic Council, and in Scottish Rite Masonry, you go through 32 degrees. And at the top, essentially, the uh, uh, top of the pyramid, you find the, uh, the Order of the Knights Templar within both Scottish Rite and York Rite Masonry. As you said, it's uh, very, it's lesser known than basic Freemasonry because here in Canada, there's only about uh, 3,500 uh, uh, Masons who are Knights Templar, but Knights Templar is identified as those as an order, Christian Masonic order, um, those who believe in the Holy Trinity. Um, and as you know, the Scottish Rite, there's an honorary 33 degree, 33 degrees awarded uh, to those who show exemplary service to Scottish Rite Masonry. So it really comes together at the at the point of the uh, pyramid. Uh, the Order of Knights Templar here is very select. Um, when I joined, I was in my late 40s. The average age of uh, Knights Templar here in Canada is probably 80. 
Um, uh, I always say that they were longing for new blood, but it's because of the my special relationship with within my family, my great uncle being Supreme Grandmaster uh, for Canada in the 50s and heavy Masonic family. But also uh, because of the uh, the knowledge that I've conveyed within the, the books that I've written, it's come as a surprise to many even within the Templar order. And you then also were or still are, I don't know, Supreme Grandmaster of the, of the Canadian Priory, right? Yes, that's correct. Actually, uh, last August, I was supposed to turn over my tenure um, uh, to Deputy Grandmaster. But because of the pandemic, we decided that I would extend. I decided that I would extend all my grand officers and myself for another year. So my term is up in uh, August of uh, 2022. Hopefully, if nothing else happens. Yeah, we all, well, not for that reason, but we all no, hope it turns yes. back to normal. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you for sharing also that with us. Um, but just to, to, to round that up, um, it does certainly exist in Europe, but um, that type of pass beyond the, the York right and the Scottish right is very typical for North America, isn't it? It is. It is. And the belief is because one of the points why it is so here in North America is because the ritual was actually brought uh, from the original Knights Templar. And uh, this is the biggest sort of clue or treasure that we could uh, rediscover here in North America is that there is a continued continuous or continuity between the medieval ritual of Knights Templar of the Holy Land in France and the Knights Templar ritual here in Canada. As I say, although it's being Christianized, uh, there are certain elements that I've been able to, through my research, determine that there's really common elements. And those elements became the basis of development of Freemasonry in the 14, 15, 1600s. I find it interesting when you say, and I, I, I uh, underwrite that, right? I'm not contradicting you, but sure. I, I find it interesting that you say it has been Christianized because, of course, the the order of the Templars was a Christian order. Uh, um, put into being by the Pope at the time in the 11th century. So it's then interesting that you say those rituals have been Christianized at the later stage. Can you, can you explain that a little bit? Sure. Well, it, it, let's put it this way. It's been Christianized from the uh, Council of Nicaea from uh, uh, Constantine times. If you looked at the original Christian beliefs, Prior to that, and there's a number of churches around the world that uh, are early Christian churches. I think uh, early Christian uh, ritual is, is more based on Jesus as a man being able to achieve that higher level through ritual and through the Christian mysteries versus uh, him becoming a Godhead uh, through the uh, uh, Council of Nicaea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so what you are saying is that they are, they, those rituals are, um, I, I don't know the correct English term for that, but, um, are early Christian or are, are, what's the very first Christians would have followed. Sure. Sure. And, uh, right. um, 
I'm trying to think what the term would be here, but uh, it's very difficult to to explain that there were there were certain Christian beliefs prior to the formalization of Christianity by the church in the uh, uh, 300 AD. Sure, sure, and and also and. Um Please correct me if I'm wrong. You were talking about sacred geometry in the Templar rituals, also in Masonic rituals. This is, of course, coming out of a time which was pre-Christian, which is the hermetic teachings of, of, of the Egyptian times. And they were rediscovered, so to speak, in the 14th century and then also Christianized and became part of, of the Western esoteric tradition. Is, some, is that something similar, a pa parallel movement to what you're describing? No, actually, yes, very much so. It's a parallel movement because uh, think about it. I tried to, uh, during the number of talks that I give uh, around the world, I tried to explain that the sacred geometry is essentially the geometry that we accept within high school at this yeah. point in time. But 2,000 years ago, that would have been pure gold, would have been the secret knowledge uh, that uh, to the Greek and to the Roman civilizations, um, it would have been a safely guarded secret uh, being developed and rationalized uh, by Pythagoras and, and other philosophers. Um, so there is that, there is that, philosophy or spiritual aspect to to sacred geometry and its application because it was allowing you a glimpse of uh, a higher level based upon the supreme beings uh, wisdom and knowledge and expression of the supreme being in a materialized world right exactly mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well let's now move to your latest book, The Last Refuge of the Knights Templar. So let's let's close the circle somehow. Um, so we are now in modern times, in our time, so to speak, in that novel, in that novel that you describe. And this is a story of a couple who meet basically in Washington uh, around research that that young gentleman makes within the Scottish right well, let's call it their sanctuary, the Scottish Rite, the central building in Washington, D.C., and they discover something together. Can you, can you tell us a bit about that discovery and about the real background of the discovery this young couple in the book makes? Sure. When I, when I uh, originally uncovered the, uh, what I referred to as the Pike Letters, uh, there were 33 Pike Letters, uh, and obviously the, the numbers uh, of the Pike Letters in itself is, is a clue, but I found that when I laid the Pike Letters out on the floor, that there was a certain logic and reason associated with them and a, and a hidden level of meaning. And uh, I'm uh, certain that the, the correspondence between McLeod Moore and Albert Pike in the States had a higher level of secret meeting embedded with it. And from that, I've been able to discern that I believe that uh, the this secret knowledge uh, related to, and as you can appreciate within various Masonic orders there and Scottish Rite Freemasonry, uh, there's uh, this notion of a secret crypt being rediscovered under the ruins of the of the temple 
And within that secret crypt is sacred knowledge, uh, physical treasure, and other wonders of the world uh, upon which um, it becomes the uh, uh, property and uh, uh, sacred knowledge of Freemasonry. And so I've been able to determine that, in the fact, uh, I pinpointed through the Templar Meridians, a site in Montana. And since then, I've been working with a, a set of Masonic uh, geologists that have uh, staked the area out. And uh, we believe in actual fact that uh, this site in Montana is the real location of uh, Solomon's coal mines and that uh, the Hebrews and others, Phoenicians, Carthaginians, and others, pre-Christian uh, uh, ancient mariners were actually sailing to North America in uh, over 2,000 years ago. When you talk about Montana, that is still quite far away from the Atlantic coast, right? Very much so. But if you look at it, you can access the Missouri River, which uh, its headwaters lie in Montana. So either through the Great Lakes of uh, uh, Canada and, and the United States or up the Mississippi, Mississippi River in the Gulf of Mexico. So this latest book, this is a really breathtaking story, a page turner, right? And I mean, it, that I don't mean, I mean that positively, right? You, you, you go through it really in quite a pace, uh, because it's, it keeps you fascinated. Uh, also in a way that hard to say, because I am amazing, but also somebody who does not have a deep knowledge of the background would really find a page turner and interesting. So, and it leads in the end without wanting to spoil it, because I don't think you can spoil it anyway. It leads to a point where uh, the the where the characters where, where they don't they don't open the secret so to speak right that's right they decide that uh, it's better well off uh, let sleeping dogs lie because uh, uh, think about it there's uh, certain relics it's alluded to in the Da Vinci Code and uh, other fictional movies such as National Treasure that there's uh, certain relics there that would oppose the Christian Church. Uh, relics of um, possibly relating to the Holy Family of Jesus and Mary Magdalene and their offspring or the Holy Bloodline. Uh, other secret documents, uh, Gospels uh, that are available that uh, who knows how that could lead to with either the destruction of the church or the uh, solidification of a new church um, from a Christian point of view. So it's an interesting uh, moral to the story and uh, very much like Freemasonry, uh, it's left up to the reader to decide whether uh, in actual fact that they would open the vault or not. Now, I, I have to ask you something, but uh, if you don't want or if you cannot reply just don't but um would would you say that you have opened the vault i would yes i would say that i have and the things that uh, i've discovered i've again i've heated my own vice and left well enough alone i don't think i have the knowledge or the uh, the power or the ability to decide this is the big question. If you discovered 
the ultimate Templar treasure. If you discovered a, a treasure that could change the whole aspects of the, uh, uh, the power hierarchy around the world, what would you do with it? Think about it also. Who would lay claim to it? Everybody and their uncle, the U.S. government, uh, all the uh, European royal families, um, including the ones that sit in Windsor Castle in England right about now. Um, a variety of aspects. The Knights Templar were developed uh, uh, from knowledge around the world. Uh, who would who would have absolute claim of that treasure? So um, wiser men probably could answer that than, than myself. Well, this is probably a very theoretic answer to that question. I, I'm aware of that, but I would say the Masonic answer to that question is humanity. Exactly. But how do you control that? That's the question. Well, sure. No, of course, that's why I'm saying it's a theoretic answer. Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. And, uh, and to me, this is what Freemasonry is all about. Uh, um, having that, uh, that choice, understanding the spiritual aspects, but it's really your choice, individual choice, what you do with that wisdom. But in that respect, and Nico, now we go into another terrain, but I think that's especially interesting for our listeners here. Um, um, in that aspect, when you say that, or also when we talked about the secret crypt, which of course can be compared to the vaults in the Golden Dawn, for example, or to the, to the womb in, in nature religions, in, in exactly. the, the, the great mother religion, etc. Um, isn't mystery in the end a very occult um, system that has very many, many relations to all those other systems that call themselves occult? And I mean occult uh, in the way of expressing hidden meaning and not nothing dark, right? No, exactly, exactly. I I refer to, uh, and a lot a lot of Masons get upset when you refer to it as as esoteric. Uh, perhaps not in the lower levels, but I find in the in the higher levels of ritual, and uh, the more you read about the background to the rituals and to the philosophies, is that there's obviously an occult or esoteric, uh, and you get into the golden dawn you get into AE weight uh, I believe that those um, uh, well Crowley used it for black magic which uh, was an offshoot uh, uh, we won't go there but uh, on the other hand AE weight I believe that achieved uh, that spiritual aspect that that higher level a glimpse into the higher level of God and the creator uh, than that we're, we're normally taught and the biggest aspect is that, and as I say, you can achieve the same level going for a walk in nature, sitting under a tree, listening to a brook, um, babbling brook. You can achieve uh, the same level meditating. Um, uh, there's a there's a whole number of ways to reach that higher level, but uh, Freemasonry I found is the key, is the key, and probably because of my background and your background, Rudolph, yeah, um, is the key that that has provided me with that opportunity to achieve that higher level. 
But of course, that aspect that you mentioned also when we were talking about the indigenous rituals, the aspect of life out of death and rebirth, which is not solely to indigenous workings and Masonic workings, but also to all kinds over the world, all kinds of very shamanic and other up to high magical backgrounds. Um, I think that also means that you have at some point to cross that abyss between the dark and uh, and the bright worlds to get to know it and to, to choose, right? No, absolutely. And uh, uh, it's interesting. I've discovered, I've, I've witnessed um, a number of shaman, a number of medicinal ceremonies, uh, the curing of people with cancer and things like that. And whereas 30 years ago, I would have been non-believer, but uh, uh, the whole thing is to open up your heart and open up your mind that it's an, it's amazing what the human spirit can accomplish if, if it's uh, centralized and focused. And that's what uh, any ritual does, is allow you to achieve that focus. And now that you're saying it a second time, Bill, um, I'm 61. You're 66, you said? 67. 67. So we are, we are close. And uh, I feel very sympathetic to the fact that you say... 20 years ago or 30 years ago, you wouldn't have believed this or that, or you would have seen things differently. Now, without wanting to, to uh, say that our young listeners are not able of sensing that, but how, in what can you maybe develop a little bit on in what sense age has helped you to grasp certain things in a different manner uh, or maybe to go further or maybe not but um, how has that influ how has age influenced your perception and awareness there, yeah there, there's something that i should uh, really um really talk about uh, before that in terms of even during my young times I was achieving certain you you have dreams you have certain oh, sure. spiritual experiences out of body yeah, experience, yeah. but you don't have the, you don't have the experience or the patience or the knowledge to realize what happened it was just one of those things where it, it's like experiencing deja vu um, as a young child, uh, you know, either you go backwards or forwards and you can remember your earliest memories that come to you just because there's trigger points. But now I, I think the biggest thing is that as you get older, you develop that patience. Um, the first time, uh, 20, 20 years ago, I went through a fasting ceremony where after preparation through the sweat lodge, uh, uh, you're sent out and you, you fast in the woods without water or food for five days or five nights. Now, the younger ones, uh, younger indigenous people attempt it and uh, inevitably they come out after two to three days because they don't have the patience or don't have knowledge to accept what's happening. I think as we get older, we accept more and more what's, what's happening around us without having to explain it all. And uh, especially within your busy lives, 30 years ago, raising a family, you know, you're, you're too busy trying to get the kids to soccer or hockey, uh, get them in, in schools, uh, a variety of things for trying to, you know, ha have what's described as a life. I think my life is fuller right now 
Um, the, the families are still there. Uh, my good wife is still there. But uh, on the other hand, you have those moments where you're able to reflect on things that have happened throughout your lifetime. And the memories, memories to me, in part because of Freemasonry, come, come quicker and become more clearer. Mm -hmm. So let me just put that straight towards our listeners. I'm not saying, of course, that those people who say that at a very young age or when they're youngsters, they have those experiences that that this cannot be. Of course, it is true. I, I, I fully believe that. But I just wanted to see and you explained that very well. Well, thank you. Um, how that develops and how it changes and becomes different and maybe more also adapted to our age. It could also just be that, right? No, exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And the more the more one experiences, I think it's the old adage, uh, you know, as a teenager, you don't think your parents know anything. Um, uh, you, you learn that life's lessons uh, teach you well. And sometimes I would wish that in the 21st century, the young people were a bit more like that, were a bit more um, protests and, and a bit more fighting for their better world than they actually do. I, I, I feel so, I feel sorry for the young kids nowadays, especially with the pandemic. It, it's one of the there seems to be a lost generation where the younger, younger people, all the experiences uh, wearing masks and, and being uh, locked up uh, uh, in the house and going to school online. It's it's unfortunate that uh, that will be the basis of their whole uh, development over their adulthood. Absolutely. It's a, it's really a question of socializing that is being missed here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, Bill, before we round up and close this talk, um, which has been very interesting, thank you. Um, tell us about your next plans, what your maybe your next book will be or other things that that's on your tablets that we should know about referring to our uh, what we were talking here about today. Well, it's interesting. Uh, I talked about these uh, group of geologists in the States based on my, on my book. They uh, staked out a whole mountain range uh, of uh, gold nutter mineral claims. Uh, and they've asked me to participate with them in terms of uh, uh, exploring old gold mines from the 1800s. Um, okay. all the while collecting, uh, uh, cold samples and things like that. So, uh, we're on the trail of, uh, I believe, uh, although I've been in the crypt, uh, um, I think that there's evidence of real ancient civilizations throughout uh, North America that are waiting discovery. So I'm looking forward to that. And, uh, one of my good friends is Scott Walter and some of the uh, listeners may recognize the name. He was the host of America on earth for five years. And, uh, uh, between us all, we uh, we have identified a number of sites that we really want to visit and uh, investigate with respect to uh, those early Templar settlements across North America. And um, so do you think that will be also the subject of a later book then? Uh, I promised my wife that I wouldn't write another book. <laughs> See, <laughs> 
but uh, but uh, here in the room with the door shut, uh, probably will be. And uh, uh, who knows where things will lead us. Uh, obviously, I want to participate more with my in- indigenous brothers and sisters and uh, in- investigate the uh, the spiritual worlds uh, out there within Freemasonry and outside of it. So let's hope your wife doesn't listen to this podcast, Bill. Then. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure she will. I'm sure she will. I, I hope so, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much, Brother Bill, for this fascinating hour in your company. Thanks for filling us in in uh, topics that I, I'm sure many of us weren't aware of. And um, uh, thanks for sharing that with us. And good luck for those future researches and 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 your future work. And um, let's also all hope that the pandemic will will get over soon and in a leave us a better world in some way. Exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you very much, Rudolph. This was a very nice conversation and I hope your listeners enjoy it. I hope so too. I have always a very terrible habitude. Um, I'm always asking my guests for a last final word. What would that be for our listeners? If uh, if the listeners are interested more in my books, they can go, uh, they can get it through any of the bookstores, Amazon, or they can get it from the publisher directly, innertraditions.com. Uh, they can visit my website, uh, templarsnewworld.com, all one word. And, uh, and uh, I think they would be very interested in my last book. As you say, uh, I found uh, some inspiration in terms of writing, incorporating uh, actual historical material within, uh, within the fictional story. And I, and I really enjoyed that. Thank you. And of course, all those links are going to be on the page relating to this podcast episode. Thank you so much, Bill. And um, well, good luck for you and all the best. Thank you. Thank you.
Alai Aleluya, Circle Dance, Native American song, of course, in a contemporary version. It was the type of thing that you do with um, native and, and local musics and you make them for, up for contemporary sounds and being commercialized. That's what happened here, of course. We are aware of that. So it's Laiolei Aleluya. There are many versions out there of that rather famous native song, Circle Dance song. And I thought it would be a good fit to end up this show. Right. Um, well, thank you for listening. Thanks, William Mann, for being with us here today on that fascinating topic, which, as I said, is something that is completely um, unknown to us Europeans here. So I hope those of you who are European liked to discover that idea. Give me your thoughts on the topic. It's always interesting to hear that also, especially when we go a bit out of the regular range of things that we usually do here. And that was certainly the case here today. Um, so lovely to have you with me. And I hope you all will be back next week. And well, next week, there is somebody here back the third time on the show who the first two times he was here, you really adored what you say and you adore, adore his books and his talks wherever he appears. And I'm very glad that he has become a, well, you could say a regular on this show, I think it's the third time in a year, not even that he has been here. And it was really worth interviewing him. And you will, well, uh, of course, I give you the name. Just hang on, hang on, hang on. It, uh, you will be next week in the company of the great John Michael Greer again. And we are going to talk about two topics, actually, about sacred geometry and sacred geometry, especially in the context of being a basic subject, the support of any occult work, personal work that you would like to do. And we're going to talk about Pluto in astrology, because John Michael has released his first book on astrology, which is quite an event, and Pluto, Plutonic astrology, a um, very actual thing, right? So I hope you'll all be back and enjoy John Michael Greer next week. Um, well, this was today's episode, and um, I think what we should always do, as I said earlier also in the intro to the, to the show, um, let's have a thought to all those suffering people who are suffering from a war and completely unnecessary aggression that is happening at the moment in the world. And um, not on, do not only think about those people, pray for them if you want, or make whatever... Um, is in your spiritual work for them, but especially also support them financially whenever you can give donations. Um, it's really needed. You know, we here, where we are in Austria, we are just a few hundred kilometers away, and um, it fills us all with sorrow to see those people suffering. Right. And you, all of you, wherever you are, stay safe and healthy and take care. Stay tuned. Hear you soon.